Welcome to a new Ad Voices podcast. I'm Helena Schulz-Krimeno from EI, and today I have the pleasure to introduce our very own Deputy General Secretary David Edwards, who talked to Keith Lewin, Emeritus Professor from the University of Sussex, about the situation of education funding. As a Global Partnership for Education, also known as GPE, is moving towards its replenishment, in this podcast we will be looking into how the financing of education through the GPE has materialized itself. We will learn about the current state of financing of education and about the resources that are available for this funding. Hello everyone, my name is David Edwards, Deputy General Secretary of Education International. Uh, I'm here with uh, Emeritus Professor Keith Lewin, of International. he's the Emeritus Professor of International Development at the University of Sussex, um, who is probably pretty well known to many of our listeners, but for those who he, who isn't well known, you should know that he created the International Master's Program at Sussex some over 30 years ago, I believe he said. And he also uh, directed DFID's Research Center on Access to Education. Uh, up until recently, he was advising the government of India. And uh, he's known to many of us in the international education field um, in term because of his work in EFA and helping us track EFA and think about strengthening systems. Um, uh, also with the SDGs. It's been about the last 27 years, we just figured out, right, Keith? Um, a long time. I hope a lot's changed, but I think I remember some pieces that you've been writing around the SDGs about how much hasn't changed, uh, unfortunately. Um, thank you very much. Welcome to EI. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here, and uh, I'll try and answer the questions you're going to put to me. Yeah. So one of the things that's, that's going on right now, Keith, um, is we have the, the, the Global Partnership for Education will be moving towards its replenishment. It does that every so many years. Um, you remember the Fast Track Initiative, uh, no, no government uh, without it with having a good sound plan would go without uh, the necessary resources. Um, and as it happens, around the same time as the SDGs, ADIS uh, was happening around financing the, the, and there was sort of this very ambitious set of goals and obviously for education and, and for education for all and SDG4. Um, and with that came quite, a, quite an ambitious price tag, but the financing has not materialized in the ways um, that some had hoped. Um, and as a result of that, there are a number of, I don't know what you want to call them, they'd like to call them in an innovative financing mechanisms um, in terms of opening up new lines of credit for lower middle-income countries. Um, but it does seem like one of the problems is that the, the donors have still yet to, to meet their own targets, their own promises, um, and their own commitments. So how do you sort of, how would you characterize where we are right now in terms of, of the landscape around financing for, for global education? Uh, I think it's a very good question. Uh, one way of approaching that, of course, is to go back to the history to establish what's likely to happen, it's a good idea to look at what has happened in the past. What happened with the first uh, wave of Education for All financing from 1990 was that it was very slow to get off the ground. And it really wasn't until the middle of the decade uh, where cash started to flow in volume. 
By the time of Dakar in 2000, we had these promises that no country without a credible plan would fail to educate all its children uh, for lack of resources. I think, by and large, that was met. Um, I don't think, if you look back over the last 15, 17 years, um, there are many countries that had a credible plan that didn't find it was possible to finance it. So that tells us something about our starting point. Um, and, and any discussion about what volume of finance may be needed has to depend on a diagnosis of where we are now and where we want to go, recognising what happened in the past. It uh, could be a long and complex story, but I'll try and, try and make it very simple. Um, clearly more cash is needed. The GPE should be replenished, probably at around about its existing level and possibly more. Um, Volumes of finance greatly in excess of that, which are being discussed in relation to the International Finance Commission, um, raise a different set of questions about indeed what it's for and why isn't what we've allocated so far enough. It's true that the total volume of aid to education has pretty much plat plateaued since 2010, but that could partly be because in some countries we've done a good job. Hmm. We don't need to keep increasing it because actually a lot more children are going to school and a number of countries in the worst category, if I can put it that way, in terms of levels of achievement on uh, universalising access uh, are smaller than they were. But um, I've spoken for, uh, for quite long already and I guess you probably want to get back to me on something I've already said about the nature of the demand and how we go forward from here because very large volumes of additional finance, if the, if the so-called gap really is uh, 20 or 30 billion a year annually. Uh, that, that is many times what the World Bank currently spends on education. Mm. Uh, it's between 10 and 20 times as much. Uh, this is a sea change. This would be a completely different kind of wealth. Um, and it, of course, would have implications uh, for the other institutions, for the, for the bank, for the bilateral players, and for the um, GPE, because their scale of operation would be eclipsed by anything that was that big. But they're also talking about a percentage. If we go back to the commission that you mentioned, uh, that was set up by Gordon Brown, they they had a they were still talking about ninety percent of the funding needed to be domestic uh, resource mobilization. And I always feel like I don't know about you, but we get in these conversations and tax isn't sexy, and uh, talking about progressive taxation and talking about where those resources are going to come from vis-a-vis. Um, uh, you know, w what's happening around the, the, the aid architecture, uh, the money that's available, the fact that, um, you know, it's, it's, we're often compared with health. There's this idea that if we could just have a better business case, there's all this money that's out there, but that what's holding it back in terms of donors is that we don't have a good story. We don't have, we don't have a good top line story. And if we just get that story, then that'll release all of that all of that money. Now, I don't think that'll release the, the tax, the domestic resource mobilization. It's what, what the commission tells is sort of the top of that 10%. Yeah, um, well, I think that's very astute. But let me say uh, two or three things. The first thing is this. I just don't buy the case that the, the case for education's not been made. Yeah. That's ridiculous. A, lo a lot of people have spent a lot of time over the last 30 years making this case. 
if somebody's not accepting the it case, comes out really uh, glib, doesn't it? The uh, way uh, they uh, yeah, the, the, if 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 the global community is not accepting the case, then the problem is with the donors and the governments. It's not with some other group of people who aren't making a good case. Um, a very very powerful cases have been made and continue to be made. <coughs> there isn't a new case to be made that's radically different. It's the same case, and it's well known and it's well argued. What's not being understood, uh, I think, is where the margins are, where, uh, how big the problems are with children who are out of school and children who aren't learning, um, how big they really are, and whether more money will actually resolve those problems. Uh, it's, uh, you can say this very simply, if you have an underperforming system, uh, where children are reaching the age of 10 or 15 and not achieving most of the national curriculum objectives, then simply throwing twice as much money at it will not solve the problem. You know what the problem is? The problem could be uh, material, it could be infrastructure, it could be teacher motivation, it could be uh, teacher competence, it could be all sorts of things. Um, until you know that, you don't know where the money is going to make any difference to the problem. And simply doubling the cost of an ineffective system doesn't resolve anything. Um, we do know some things about the um, nexus that we are uh, seeing ourselves address. You make a very good point about the financing. Of course, anybody who looks at this uh, quickly realises not only that most of the money involved is domestic and has to be generated from domestic revenue, especially if it's in the context of sustainable development. Mm. Um, most of that money is also recurrent. Right. And it's a very bad idea to f finance teachers' salaries and do other recurrent costs, meet other recurrent costs from external resources because you have no guarantee that these will continue indefinitely in the future. The situation at the moment uh, it looks something like this. In low and uh, low middle income countries, it's slightly different to each other. Uh, but to, to simplify, about uh, governments in those countries collect about 15% of GDP in tax revenue. That is what finances all government services. If um, if they uh, allocate 20% of their public spending to education, which is more than they actually do, and that tends to be about 15% uh, in that group of countries, um, <coughs> they will not have a sufficient money to educate all their children because they don't. Uh, they end up allocating about 4% of GDP, which won't be sufficient given the demographics <coughs> the demographics of those low-income countries. Um, the current situation is that the 4% on average that those countries, low-income countries, allocate to education, about a third of that is externally financed. And the problem with dramatically increasing the volume of external financing is partly about dependency. Right. I mean, of course you can um, finance half the government budget in a country. You can finance all the government budget in a country if you wish, um, but that's not a sustainable strategy for the future. And the risk, unless you carefully tailor the financing to the demand and to the plan, the credible plan going forward, um, is that you end up not only creating uh, dependency, but you, in, you create a high level of risk, of systemic risk, because you may change your policy. The development community may change its sentiment towards investing in education and all these other things. You don't know. So from a sustainable development point of view, it's absolutely important um, that you shouldn't give aid unless you can see a way of stopping giving the aid. It should be part of the plan. The graduation. That the, the whatever is coming from the outside, yeah. it ramps up and ramps, ramps down within a 
a, a scenario that uh, creates a situation where from the tax that governments raise they can finance it. The simple truth is, and the Finance Commission recognises this I think, um, that um, in order to create sustainable financial scenario um, on average in a low income country you probably need to be raising about 30% of GDP to finance government services. So you've got to go from 15% to 30%. That is, that's the, that is the problem. Hard to happen uh, with citizen um, tax. Nobody in recent history has actually done that in three years or five years. It means raising more tax either from uh, businesses or from VAT or from uh, income tax, but it's inescapable that it means raising more tax. Um, and simply um, avoiding that question by increasing the volume of external finance doesn't solve any problem. It just delays it. But there was, there was a lot of momentum at one point around the FTT, around the financial transaction tax, looking at sort of what multinational corporations were doing in terms of offshore, um, in terms of like the base erosion, in terms of getting these great big tax holidays. And so Oxfam, ActionAid, a number of big NGOs and some governments, there, there seemed to be sort of a move there. But in many ways, when it came down to, to Addis and it came to the actual moment we're making a, a really big compact around uh, sort of multinational taxation tax justice it just sort of lost lost steam is that is that fair characterization or is do you think uh, that's still yeah I think that's an accurate description of what happens and it uh, what happened and it's you know kind of not surprising that um, uh, political systems and politicians uh, don't volunteer to increase taxes in general because it makes them unpopular right um, but if you want first world type levels of participation and universal access to public service, publicly funded services, uh, clearly you have to collect tax from somewhere. And you can't rely on um, external sources of finance indefinitely. It simply is not sustainable. And of course the implication of the sustainable development goals is exactly a reminder that it's not only about environmental concerns, it's about sustainable development which has within it the ability to finance itself not be financed by somebody else because that becomes a kind of infinite regress and it also creates these vulnerabilities and of course it's an invitation to a kind of neo-colonialism and dependency. Um, aid is good at accelerating things, that's what it's for, it's to make things happen quicker than they would otherwise happen. Uh, this, the same can be said about borrowing money. Hmm. You know, borrowing money has to be reflected in accelerated development and benefits which allow you to pay back what you borrowed. And that's another one of the risks with leveraging existing yeah. uh, portfolios and so on. Um, these are complex matters, but uh, at the end of the day, if you are creating more debt, it has to be repaid by somebody somewhere. Right. Uh, and if, uh, as has happened in the past, private debt is being translated into public debt in situations where there may be a default, um, if you can anticipate that, then you wouldn't do it. It does seem to almost look like a sort of a global Ponzi scheme in a way. Some of the things that are being discussed and are on the table where, you know, donors are being told they don't actually need to put any new money. It's just a promissory note. It's just, it's just a piece of paper. It sounds so much like the, the, the financial crisis in a way if we look back. What do you think might be some of the, I mean, in terms of if we wanted to sort of stop that or, 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 or defend against that or to, to, to ensure that these... Um, you know, Paris and some of these other agreements where we were looking at, you know, 
the issue of debt. Um, I mean, what, what do we have at our, our, our disposal right now in terms of maybe pushing back or trying to wake people up um, to some of these uh, that seem to be very alluring and, 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 like I said before, very sexy um, ideas that have been borrowed from health? Um, what, do we, what do we have to, to sort of push back on that and to ensure that they don't do more harm than good? Um. I think there are some things that we should do, and I think you know, as a matter of principle, obviously, transparency is high on the list of how these kind of arrangements should be developed and how they should be presented. Um, if you, if taxpayers in the countries which are contributing to the financing of the multilateral and bilateral agencies um, cannot understand the financial vehicles which are being used to apparently increase the capital base, then something's, something's not right. And I think that's the situation at the moment. I think it's very difficult to find out what the existing proposals actually are. They seem to change quite frequently. And different documents quite clearly say quite different things about uh, the mechanisms that might be used to generate um, more resource. That's the first point. Second point, uh, I think many people feel um, that, um, that not only should this, this kind of financing, the, the raising of money to be transparent. Um, I think many people probably feel that um, uh, if you're going to give aid, then you should give aid out of your national recurrent financing system that collects taxes from people, where you have some way that uh, elects a government which can then decide what to spend, whether it's 0.7% of GDP or something else. That's something that Every um, 0.7% was what the global community of donors yeah, yeah, yeah. committed I mean, well, themselves to. That goes to. back a long way, and it's, yeah. it's, it's a very good thing. Um, but it's, it's very clear. It's what it's saying is that um, uh, you should, you know, what your GDP is. The government should allocate 0.7% if it wishes to live up to the global targets. Um, and and a good number of governments, including the British government, actually do that. Uh, so that's, that's a good thing. Um, but to f begin to finance that out of contracting debt uh, leads you into a very different world indeed because you're not allocating 0.7% of this year's money. Uh, you're allocating it, it from the future, from some flow in the future, right. uh, which then invites the question, what about next year and what about the year after? Uh, where's, it, where's this all leading? Never mind whether you can understand uh, what is happening here. Uh, the suggestion, of course, which is also uh, very uh, contentious, I think, that you should use grant money um, to lower the interest rate on um, concessional on loans, loans. Yeah, on concessional loans. Uh, again invites a response from the taxpayer who ultimately finances this. So now no, I, I gave this money for grant. A long time ago we decided uh, not uh, to, to offer grant aid in the UK uh, rather than to construct a world in which you lent people money which they couldn't pay back. So we abandoned doing that because it, was, it did indeed, from an aid point of view, seem senseless. Um, I don't think we should probably go back there. There'd have to be a very good reason um, why, you would, why you would borrow, because borrowing has a cost as well as a set of risks. Uh, it has cost because of the transaction costs involved in managing those funds sure. and arranging them. And those costs may not be small. They could be uh, a, a very significant proportion of the money you raise, depending on how it is actually financed uh, and depend what happens to the markets in which they operate. The risk is always going to be borne by the sovereign governments that stand behind that. Um, 
um, in whatever the upfront risk para may be. But we get into complex territory there, But it, which is one of the reasons I say from a political point of view, it's very difficult to convince people that arcane levels of financing are necessary when the problem appears to most to be much more simple than that. Do you want to allocate 0.7% if you're not doing it um, generating money by leveraging existing assets is no solution in the medium term. It's just a way round. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a sticking plaster um, which isn't recurrent. And um, I come back to my original point that um, we've got to be clear what you're raising this money for. If you're raising very large amounts of money that inevitably would have to be used to pay recurrent costs in another country, um, at some point you have to say, how long is this going to go on for? Five years, 10 years, 20 years. If you're paying 20% of teachers' salaries or something, you've got no way out until the government of the country and the, the national economy grow and the tax system becomes more efficient and collects more money and therefore can finance itself. And then from the teacher's perspective, we've seen that in the past where there was actually wage caps placed because of IMF conditionalities on, on, on salaries. And so we had countries where teachers' salaries st stagnated uh, over years. They weren't even allowed to bargain and the governments would say, no, it's because of the loan we took and what IMF is telling us. So we're not able to actually uh, increase your salaries at all because you know it's, we could actually lose uh, the money that we're paying you with. Yep. So there's a lot of experience of what happens in those circumstances um, from the 1980s and uh, the recession that affected most developing countries and the problems it created for increased levels of debt and debt repayment and exactly what you say, cash limited budgets of national governments who couldn't pay their teachers and <coughs> wouldn't be f externally financed because indeed they were, as, it, as, as some would say, living above their means. So uh, I don't want to give the wrong impression here. I mean, uh, borrowing is a good thing. Uh, we all do it if it's done in a managed way, uh, which contains the risk and places the risk uh, with, the, with the group, with the agent that's borrowing. As soon as you distance these two things, of course. Uh, I'd happily borrow money if I didn't have to pay it back. So you don't want to live in that world. And you don't want to live in the moral hazard world of the expectation of default. You borrow money knowing that somebody will bail you, bail you out if you fail to pay it back in the end. Now, I don't think we're in that world. I think that um, the replenishment process for the GPE should indeed um, take place and, and, and generate the, the equivalent amounts of money to, to what it's done in the past. The case has been made. I'm not sure it needs to be made again in terms of why this should be happening. The, the way the case can be strengthened is to look at how much has been achieved with the investment of the existing funds uh, and to offer new diagnoses, if new diagnoses are needed, of the changing pattern of need. Now, clearly, in a lot of low and middle income countries, the focus is shifting towards secondary schooling. Yeah. Um, Certainly, up to the, the, age, the, SDG. To, to the age of 15, uh, which in most countries is the minimum age of work, either legally or um, de facto. Um, so uh, this is the right thing to do, but um, secondary schools are often much more difficult to finance. Uh, it's quite clear that you would not get universal levels of participation unless they are free at the point of delivery to at least half the population, probably two-thirds in a low-income country. So that, ha that has to be financed. And indeed, if you do the projections and you look at the gaps that people have been talking about, most of that gap is generated by increased participation in the secondary grades. Um, 
so from from the age from um, grade six upwards, hmm. um, where there are the largest numbers of out of school children and the costs are higher and so on. So that's what's coming down the tracks. Um, how it should be financed and how you address some of the key issues that are involved in that nexus around secondary schooling, I think, are absolutely critical. Uh, secondary schooling in South Asia and in much of sub-Saharan Africa is three or four times as expensive per child as primary schooling. But now there's these and providers out there that are saying they can do it for, for a much lower fee and a much lower cost, right, if we just bring in the private uh, sector and allow them to, to, to deliver it. Yeah, so that's happening at the same time as this, no? Yeah. Uh, there is, as we all know, I think, an extensive literature on this, and it's a highly politicised issue in which many of the studies um, suffer from conflicts of interest. They're written by people who have direct interest in the commercial aspects of, the, of these kind of schools and that kind of financing. <coughs> I think people should m indeed make their own judgments about what the potential for that mode of financing is. But I think, again, there are some simple home truths uh, that stand up to disinterested analysis. And it goes something like this. Um, truly privatised schooling with teachers, qualified teachers employed at national rates um, will not be available to uh, households below the middle of the income distribution. And, and in some countries, it may be only the top 20% that can afford this. In OECD countries, it's only the top 20% that can afford truly private schooling. It speaks for itself. And the reason is because of the cost of employing teachers and the cost of running schools and providing a health, health, healthy and safe environment and all these other things that we would uh, expect. You can't go down to the bottom and provide um, even the middle level of schooling uh, in a c totally cost-recovering way because the income distribution in your population simply won't permit it. Um, and what's being lost here is the sense in which, of course, as with health, basic education is a public good. The markets will fail it to deliver it if it's rationed by price. It cannot be rationed by price. It has to be publicly financed. It is possible that you might subcontract some of that to private providers if they could demonstrate they were efficient and they weren't making unreasonable profits. These are political questions. Or as we've seen off, off, off the salaries of un, untrained teachers, is what the, that's not what we want to talk about here, but we have had whole podcasts just dedicated to that. Um, so in, uh, in most low-income countries, teachers are in, in the middle or indeed uh, above the middle of the income distribution. Um, and they should be because they're scarce people with, with scarce talents. Um, but it's much more difficult to finance universal participation in low-income countries because they have twice as many children relative to the number of working adults and because those working adults pay much less tax as a proportion of their income. So th those are two things that you cannot escape from when you look at the financing. That um, There's a demographic element which is obviously eased if you have demographic transition, which you do in a good number of places in South Asia and some parts of Southern Africa. But in those countries where the population of children is still growing very rapidly, it's always going to be difficult to keep up. Right. Um, number one. And, num and number two, we've already discussed, if your government is being financed by taxes at 15% of GDP, you've got half as much money as you would have if you collected 30%.
Well, thanks, Keith. I mean, we're going to look, I think one of the things that's going to be interesting too with the GPE is they, they have in their pledging at their replenishment also um, developing country partners in terms of their own domestic, what they're going to uh, increase their, their tax base. I doubt we'll hear from 15 to 30, um, but if we do, I'll, I'll, I'll call you immediately. Um, Keith Lewin, thank you very much for joining us here on Ed Voices. Look forward to the next time. Thank you very much. Thanks. Enjoyed today's podcast? Then don't forget to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes.